Hey, we got an exciting podcast this week. We had Afshin Mahin on the podcast. Afshin is the designer and founder of Card79, a design and innovation company based out of San Francisco. Afshin's worked on quite a range of products and projects, ranging from speculative design to industrial design, some UX design. We talk about a little bit of furniture as well, and also Neuralink. So I think you all enjoy it. If you want to support the podcast, check out our merch store. We have t-shirts, hats, and mugs. It's a great way to support the podcast and get a little something in return. Also, we are still running our affiliate link with visoon.io. You can check them out. They create amazing key shot assets for industrial designers like you and me who probably just want to get a key shot scene going, drag and drop some products in there and get a nice shot. Um, they have some amazing assets. I've used it in some of my work. Check them out. Use our affiliate link, thissoon.io backslash minor details, and that helps them out and it helps us out as well. Also, you can email us at minordealspodcast at gmail.com. If you have a question or want to sponsor an episode, uh, shoot us an email. We'll take a look at that. And yeah, give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcast. It really helps us out. I think uh, you know Spotify added five stars recently, so make sure you go and do that if you haven't done that already. And yeah, the thumbs up on YouTube too. And I know you all probably listen on one platform, but if you just help us out, Go on all the platforms and give us those ratings. I think it really helps boost the algorithm. And yeah, let's get to it and hear the intro by Kyoshi the Kid. Welcome to Minor Details. I'm Nick. And I'm Afshin. And we're two designers in the big city. Sweating the small stuff. <laughs> oh, man. Afshin, uh, it's it's great to meet you. Um, you reached out and I I took a look in your uh, your history and you've got some quite, quite an interesting uh, past under your belt. So I'm excited to get into that. You worked for uh, IDEO and you also worked for Whipsaw. For a time and now you have your own studio card 97 or sorry card 79 um and you've also done work on the Neuralink project so i a lot of little interesting things that i'm curious about um so welcome thank you very much glad to be here super excited um so we usually like to start off the episode with a little bit of background i'm kind of curious like how you got into design you know i i listened to a few of your interviews you've you've done a few of the the podcasts but um Kind of curious how you discovered industrial design and uh, got into the field. Yeah, uh, so I was uh, children, uh, child of an immigrant family, moved over from Iran in the early, early late seventies, and uh, not a lot of like creative background. My parents were um, just focused on kind of practical things around uh, settling in. And so uh, a lot of the uh, kind of efforts around being exposed to design was just curiosity. So I think I was, uh, before I knew what design was, I was, this is in the early 80s when it was um, like um, cool race cars, like Ferraris and Lamborghinis were in, they had magazines. And so I'd pick those up when we were at the corner store and think this is super cool. Who makes these? 
the same time you had Nike doing really cool shoes. Um, and so like I was, I was sketching shoes, I was sketching floating cars and didn't know really what it was called. Um, and then moving into high school, I think there was a course, I think it was called art careers. And part of that was going and just like deciding, like researching different careers in art. And I went to the local art school and this is in Vancouver. And Emily Carr had a library. Emily Carr Art, uh, it's a art school in, in Vancouver. Um, had a library, and I flipped through the ID through ID magazine, and I was like, "What is this? <laughs> this is crazy!" Um, and at that point, I kind of started to to hook into it. Um, it's not the path I I actually took. I I ended up kind of veering through like uh, having parents focused on practical means made them think this guy's really good with his hands. Maybe you should think about going into dentistry or doing something that's like involves like better uh, hand-eye coordination and, and is a bit more dependable and like <laughs> predictable. And so dentistry is interesting. That's a funny, funny yeah. one to, to yeah. design. Totally. I did a, a, a road trip. At some point I was going to be a car designer and a dentist. Uh, and then <laughs> I think I talked to uh, like one of the, the guidance counselors at art center. And they're like, that's ridiculous. Or an alumni from the art center. And he's like, that's ridiculous. And then, um, I uh, veered into engineering, and so I, I did a, a degree in mechanical engineering. Um, and from there, I kind of knew while I was doing that, I was taking part-time courses at the art art school, and knew that I was going to go and do another degree in, in industrial design afterwards. And made my parents happy, and then at that point, <laughs> veered off and uh, moved to the UK and started uh, ID school at the Royal College. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of a long story short. Um, kind of yeah. gives you a sense of um, how I mean I, th I think what's interesting is going the engineering route first and then going into design yeah usually you know I, I feel like there are engineers who study design but their their work is always usually tainted by that engineering outlook and not to say not to mean that's a bad thing but yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like your work doesn't necessarily I definitely think you draw from the engineering brain for some mm -hmm. of your work but mm -hmm. you are very distinctive and, and your work is still really beautiful. Um, so I think you've, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, the insight is in there, but you I know, think that's an interesting. That's a great insight. And I think it's something we, we don't know if the market needs it, but it's just a byproduct of maybe who I am. So um, as we went through, as I went through that engineering degree uh, coming out of it, I was like adamantly fighting. It, it forms you, it creates you. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a ability to, to hammer down through a systems level approach to problems. And when I was at IDEO, like there's a reason why David Kelly designed, it was the kind of predecessor. He was an engineer as well. Like engineering gives you the ability to look at problems at a very high level uh, and, and, and kind of break it down. Whereas in, in design, and this is what I'll be talking about at this conference is it's intuitive ability to kind of make decisions quickly. And, and you sometimes skim over problems, but your skill is the speed and your ability to kind mm. of just trust your gut. And, and often those two ways of approaching problems. Um, and, and, and usually that really, that translates to beauty intuition. Like you kind of know what looks right. good and you don't have to process it. Like it's a math equation. Um, but I think that in the world we live in and the problems we're facing right now, having the ability to bring those together seems to be our sweet spot. So whether it's designing for AI or BCIs, brain computer interfaces, um, the last 20 years I've, I've like fought that side of me that's able to understand these problems and focus purely on creating beauty, mm -hmm. um, improving my sketching, embracing model making, like doing everything that a, a good industrial designer should do and, and appreciating the craft at a deep level. 
Um, at the same time, I, I just understand that that, that, that time in my life when I was starting to like build that repertoire of ways of thinking that, that engineering side of me is kind of, it's there. Yeah. So, and I, I, I now build on it. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great that you've mastered both of those skills, right? One doesn't overtake the other. You're able to like shut one down and be intuitive versus sometimes you might need to turn on the engineering brain and really solve the the hard problems yeah i think it's it's being it's like kind of like meditating on how you're thinking so being that meta brain that's watching yourself think and saying okay be intentional with how you want to be thinking at this point because it's useful and think this way at this point because it's useful in this way yeah um so you went on to work so you were you grew up in vancouver you studied in rca and then after that you went back to you went to silicon valley you worked at ido and whipsaw if i'm correct right yeah, I did Whipsaw first and um, had a great experience there. It was my first job coming out of school um, and was exposed to some really talented uh, nuts and bolts industrial design. Um, what projects did you get to work on? We worked on a lot of like consumer electronics okay. startups uh, in the 2007 to 2010. So this is when everyone was trying everything and seeing what stuck. Okay. Did so you every- do a Nike Fuel Band? Was that in that area? No, I think that was after my time, okay. unfortunately. We worked on like cool video recording devices, cool remote controls, um, MP3 players when those existed, um, uh, some medical devices. So just everything across the board. And a lot of that, honestly, was just like learning the craft and, and, and making sure. So sketching, model making is kind of where I was making. That's where I started to get that skill set. Right. Um, and then when I was at IDEO, after that, it was... Uh, that moment where you kind of step out and ask what you're designing before you start designing it. And so I remember early on some mentors there were just kind of helping me understand what that looked like. So I kind of had to step back and stop kind of doing the design work, but start working through the design thinking process. And that, that skill set was really useful. Um, right. They're big on the design thinking. I mean, they, didn't they invent it? I, you know what they, Wait, act- were you were, you were in that sweet spot era. I feel like design thinking got really big at the time you were there, right? Am I correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I always felt like the sweet spot was when like now to Fukusawa, Sam Hackton, that whole that early like crew was doing a lot of um, industrial design there, but you always look at the grass is greener, right? I think that it's fair to say that now it's kind of gotten to something completely different as well. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I feel like I have a co-host, James, uh, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, but we've done the design thinking debate before where, <laughs> I mean, in my mind, design thinking is just design, but it's just applying it without actually sketching or, you know, doing this. It's more of a strategy thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's more open to, I guess, anyone who's able to kind of do the, the design exercise without having to sketch, um, but yeah, I don't know if there's, there's half of me that's like, it was like a, a really good marketing term and idea really capitalized on it. Uh, yeah, but there obviously is some, some valuable attributes of it as well. Yeah. And I think there's even like predecessors to IDEO. I was looking at this up and I can't, um, remember the name of the professor. I think it was Sid Parnes or someone who'd previously, um, worked in that space of just creative thinking, uh, problem solving tools. And, it's like any other tool set. Uh, there's ways of working that when you perfect them, you get good at doing a certain thing. So I think knowing the suite of design thinking approaches is just like knowing how to use marker renderings versus using gouache versus using other like drawing yeah. tool. And it takes time to master. Um, 
And would you say that's like the biggest thing you kind of learned at IDEO or was there any other kind of interesting insights you gained from that? Experience? Yeah, I, I think it was definitely like um, understanding how to step back, have that patience, uh, appreciate the craft of that work. Um, and then obviously there's a certain level of impatience that came through me that said, I want to be doing more of the design work. And so that's when I stepped away and, um, and started to focus more on the design work. But I feel like since then I've come kind of full circle. And now as a design, uh, as, a, as someone running a design agency, I do see the value in being able to have conversations with clients like of why we're designing something before we step in there and design it. Yeah. It just means that they trust you. It means that they're looking to you for more of a, um, advisorial, uh, role. And, uh, and so I think that there's that, that, that grounding was, was useful. Yeah. I mean, I think this is also what's kind of interesting about your career because after IDEO, you went back to London to freelance for, <laughs> for furniture companies, correct? Is that right? Yeah. So I, I guess complete what I, op, a complete 180. Right? Yeah. I guess I never mentioned that, um, when I was at the RSCA, I also fell in love with furniture design. I was doing industrial design and engineering, which is basically, a, it's now called innovation design engineering. It's basically working on in industrial design projects through the lens of, it's almost like Stanford's product design engineering, product design program. And their goal is to help you solve world problems, big problems, but through the lens of human centered design. Um, but when I was there, I was just watching all these amazing furniture designers doing right. cool projects and being in London, being in Europe, I was like, exposed to all the, the beautiful design culture that happens through furniture. And so I, I came to Silicon Valley and still had this hunger. And so when I, uh, when I, it was like, uh, I had a, some sort of visa for as a Canadian citizen to go work in the UK that was, it had its limit, I think it was till I was 30. And so I was like, I better use this while I can. And so I just, uh, packed up and, and left Silicon Valley and went back to London, um, did some freelance work for, um, a few different agencies. I did some work for IDEO. Then I started working with Barbara Osgerby, uh, work with Terence Conran's um, product design services, and uh, also did some work with another agency called The Division over there. And um, I definitely was using it as a chance to, to, connect, to connect that world and see what it felt like. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like you're going from this very, you know, heavy uh, strategy mind back into the really traditional kind of hands-on design work i i'm a big furniture guy i don't know if, if yeah, you can tell can or not tell, but, yeah. um, so i'm i'm really kind of interested to hear about what it's like working at barber and oscar b uh and I, i'm not as familiar with terence conran but i know that he's you know done some furniture design as well and has a a brand the conran sh conran conran shop oh, well, yeah so he's passed he's passed on right. but we're uh yeah and he's uh he's kind of the one of the uh, he started Habitat, which was one of the uh, retailers in the UK that kind of started to introduce modern furnishing, modern, modern furnishing to the UK. I think this is in the 60s. And he's established that for a, um, a few decades. It was eventually acquired. And I, I can't remember who acquired it. Um, but he's always looked at as being one of the kind of um, he also started co-started co the Design Museum in London. So he's just been instrumental in creating design culture in the UK, I think, um, through his, his shops and also just, um, his, his entrepreneurial spirit. Um, when we were working with him, we were working on, uh, product design efforts. And so it was just being around him, I guess, um, understanding how he ran his business and, and kind of his approach to 
entrepreneurial designs business slash services mm. um and then working uh, with ed and jay and the team back then it was before map being created so it was, it was before what map map it's their product design offshoot okay um so we work with ed and jay as well as another um great creative director there called john marshall he's now at pentagram and uh we were just working through i was there during the time that we were developing the um London Olympic torch. Right. So, uh, again, I think it was a passion for kind of that world, but then also coming at it through the lens of my strong technical chops. And so I was able to help them, um, assist them in their efforts to design that, that torch that needed to have 8,000, um, programmed holes to represent the 8,000 participants in the Olympic, um, run, and wow, so okay, uh, like we were we were deep in grasshopper world for a couple of months with them, trying to build out the perfect design for what ended up becoming like it was. I think it was coined the cheese grater. Oh, that's okay. what the uh, <laughs> that's what that Olympic Olympic torch was nicknamed. But there's always there's also the uh, Apple Pro, the big the big. That's uh, right. That's right. That the, or the Mac Pro. I forget what it's called. But yeah, that's cheese grater. That's a cheese too. grater as well. That's right. So every designer has to design one cheese grater. <laughs> That's yeah, that's true. So it was a great chance to be around that, those people understand that world, um, and build appreciation for, for how, um, how they approach it. And it's, it's always interesting. Um, it's, it's this ongoing kind of tension between, uh, being an established brand as a designer and understanding, uh, how to express yourself versus understanding, uh, how to run an agency where you're helping a company establish their goals. And it's, there's no right answer. You hear like everyone's got their own needs. So some companies will come to you because they want to hear your voice. And often I've heard the opposite where large orgs want to see you adapt to their needs. Right. I think both, both are dependent on who's coming to you within that organization. Usually I think it's mostly marketing and brand driven when they want to have the, designer have a strong voice because it's going to help those brands kind of build on each other. Um, but I, I don't think we're, 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 we're not in that world at at card 79 as much as I'd love it. I think our internal projects definitely like to try and explore that. But for the most part, we're an agency that helps our, our, our partners succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say more in, in my mind, I kind of separate that as, you have design consultancies, especially in you know Silicon Valley, like the Whipsaws, the IDEOs, the mm-hmm, Frogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they're very focused on you know creating the best product for the company's brand. Uh, versus you know the Barber and Oscar Bees definitely have a bit of a a brand value that they bring to usually furniture and lighting and things like that, where it's almost like a an artist type yeah. of scenario. I will say, I think we've developed like a a, a, a kind of a, a very unique unique and personal workflow, like a way we approach our problems. So it might not be evident in the actual aesthetics, but the lens we take when we're solving a problem, I think is what makes us what, what I think is, is brandable in a sense. So, um, going back to that engineering background, that systems level thinking while still focusing on beauty. Mm -hmm. So like we'll design a brain computer interface for Elon Musk and then we'll set up a photo shoot and bring in a bunch of models, art direct it. And, mm. and like those two worlds don't really come together that often. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. And so I think that that's probably a value, a unique approach that we take to our work. Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to get into the Neuralink stuff, but I, I am curious before we get there, um, working at Terrence Conran and Barber and Oscar B, what was kind of the main value that you took away from those, that experience? I mean, I know it was kind of a short time in that, in that. Yeah, no, I think it's just being able to, uh, understand how they prioritize their work and how they, um, it's, it's an, it's just a deeper understanding of the fact that they're leading with uh, developing a point of view and then finding opportunities to insert that point of view into the work. Mm, mm -hmm. So, uh, I think that's how they have built their careers and they there's probably and I see a lot of it around when I look at your studio as well it's like that ability to manifest solutions that you think should be in the world and then go out there and try and find the opportunity to make it make it real and it's it's not by luck that Terence Conran was also a good entrepreneur because I think those two worlds kind of coexist marketing your work getting it out there selling it and um, having that ability to have a unique point of view or kind of all hand in hand. Yeah. I feel this is also your, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of your first time de delving into the freelance and owning your own business part of your career. Would you say when or I was you, in the UK? Yeah. Yes. That was the first time I think it was, uh, I'd been in the consulting world and I just, I didn't even know what it was called. It was just, I wanted to kind of immerse myself in the world of, um, what I'd seen when I was the RCA. And so that, if that meant free, if that meant freelancing, that's what I was going to do. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was, I was young and naive. <laughs> that's, that's great. I mean, that's, you know, we all have to have that experience. I think it's, uh, important, you know, we, we do the risky things when, when that's the, the way. That's right. Um, so then you came back to Silicon Valley to start your, you know studio. what? I actually came back to Vancouver. I came back oh, okay. to the, to my hometown of Vancouver and started the studio there. Um, and it's reflected in some of the early work we were doing. So when we were, um, back in Vancouver, some of the earlier projects we had were wearable devices for outdoor living and wellness. And mm. so we were able to bring some of the things that I think we'd, um, experience while in the Bay area around technology. Um, and I think there's also just an appreciation of like a deeper aesthetics when something is on your body. Uh, when you're wearing it on your face. And so we're uh, constantly designing things that you either, I think we covered your, yourself from head to toe. We designed wearables that you wear on your head, on your wrist, on your body. We did wearables for Lululemon that you would tuck inside your yoga pants. We had 3D printed flip-flops, but we, we kind of, we covered your entire body. And um, Vancouver is a great ecosystem for um, prototyping and soft goods. It's got a lot of outdoor brands, Lululemon, like I mentioned, there's Herschel bags, there's Arcteryx, um, there's, uh, Sugoi. And so there's just a huge, um, talent pool of really t uh, great prototyping, uh, people that we coordinated with. Yeah. And that obviously would, would have led you into the Neuralink situation. So I'm kind of curious about Neuralink. I'm a, I'm a fan and, how did you even get that job to begin with, I guess? Yeah, that's a, a great point. Uh, great question. Um, so the work we did on the first, uh, one of the early projects in Vancouver was Recon Instruments. Um, it was a really tricky project that was designing a pair of sunglasses for runners and cyclists 
that would basically strap a computer with a little display in the bottom right-hand corner of your right eye. So you can glance down and look at uh, how fast you're going, where your um, friends were, uh, your heart rate. Um, so It's kind of similar to Google Glass, would you say? It was around the same time okay. as Google Glass, but they were able to hone in on specifically a, a, like a, a vertical of runners and cyclists. Right. So they didn't have the same backlash that Google Glass did. Um, the company was eventually acquired by Intel, which was great for them. Um, so nice exit for a small company in Vancouver. And the um, learnings on our side were really great around head ergonomics, um, comfort, fit for um, some new type of form factor that was going on your face. Because it was a computer plus a pair of sunglasses, nothing was normal. So we actually had to add volume and, vo and weight in places that you typically didn't have. And mm. runners and cyclists don't have a lot of tolerance for extra weight and extra nuisance. So we had a lot of back and forth with, with them through the design process, uh, consulting, sharing, prototyping. And that knowledge base um, translated five or six years later, so I guess in 2019, I got a call from the president at Neuralink and, and was asking about, um, I think he'd been introduced to us through uh, a common friend and uh, was asking uh, uh, what we've done in this space and I I'd heard about them but I, I honestly didn't have any like sense of how we would be able to have any background in BCIs particularly but um, as he started to describe the problems they were facing around designing a technology device that would be integrated into your onto your head inside your head like I started to see the overlap and I was it was, it was shocking. Like the conversations we had earlier on was like throwing me off, but uh, we'd come into meetings and, and the they'd have a, a, a kind of a, a few different drill sizes on the table. And he, and the conversation started out with what size drill would you be okay drilling in your head? <laughs> and I was like, I, um, maybe that one. Um, and then that was on the kind of disturbing side, but then on the fascinating side, there was other conversations where we'd sit there and, and they'd come in with a laptop and then start playing an audio file and say, I, I was like, what's this? And they're like, that's what, that's what your neurons sound like when they fire inside your brain. And I was like, I didn't know neurons made noise. Yeah. What does it sound like? It's a ticking. It's a tick, ah, tick, tick, tick. makes sense. Like they're little sparks, I guess. It's like electrons, right? Right. But I'd never huh. crossed my mind. And so there's a lot, a lot of interesting conversations. We also were in meetings where like we'd done a lot of wearables where we had electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, but now we had like a, a, a neurosurgeon in the room as well. He's like, if you cut right underneath your skin behind your ear, and then you can like tuck something in underneath your skin and attach to your scalp, that's probably the safest. And so <laughs> I was like, Oh wow. There's a, there's a new dimension to this problem space yeah. with these, uh, these new people. And so it was a really fun opportunity to see, see, a, um, uh, a, a set of kind of constraints totally shift. Um, and personally, I've just always been fascinated by anything brain related. It just feels like everyone, everyone's curious about two things in the world, space and your brain. Like there's, <laughs> we don't know anything about those, the yeah, unknown, yeah, yeah. right? Okay. So I'm no different than anyone else. I just, um, but it was when we did that project, I just kind of honed in on this and tried to learn as much as I could. And it's just an area that it feels like I've tried to do more work in. And so over the last few years, uh, we've continued to do that. Yeah. So are you, I mean, maybe, maybe I kind of want to dive into some of the details of the Neuralink. So sure. You designed yeah. the robot. Um, I'm curious what your philosophy behind the design of the robot is. The robot is the thing that implants the 
device into your brain. And maybe you could explain a little bit about how the device goes into the brain and then also how you have the external piece connect to your ear or something like that. I, I'm yeah, curious. Yeah, for you, sure. The podcast, you know, you know, the podcast is called Minor Details, so we got to get into those details. I'm more than happy to. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the collaboration with them has always been uh, very... Uh, I think it's been something we probably used as a foundation for other relationships moving forward. When we get into these projects where there's a lot of technical kind of uh, constraints, we tend to listen and uh, try and understand which ones we need to really respect and which ones we can challenge. That's probably the art of any industrial designer, really. Um, but again, that engineering background kind of helps me kind of poke and prod a little bit. Um, and so with the work we did on the robot, we, electromechanics you can't really mess with like uh, a linear drive is a linear drive it's got to go it's got to reach certain points and there's no point in challenging so the role that we played in that was mostly around understanding what it would take for having this robot taking into account all of the mechanical constraints electrical constraints of how it had to move and how it needed not collide um, designing an outer enclosure on it that would be easy for them to start introducing for clinical trials where they can have easily wipeable surfaces, no pinch points that can like kind of decapitate uh, surgeons, like things that are just going to be necessary for this to be used by real people and not, I think the second secondary audience was the first generation they did that robot was this hulking piece of like black metal. And it, I, we know we all knew it would not ship that way, but I think that it was just leaving this imprint in people's brains of mm -hmm. like this maybe not so safe process when that's not the story they're trying to tell. So the work we did was to try and find the right opportunities to design cladding and, and uh, create that cover uh, uh, design for it so that when the robot would be seen by patients, would be seen by practitioners, it was both easy to maintain, easy to clean, and didn't look like it was gonna hurt you. So that was our main contribution on that project. And it was a fun project, the, a lot of smart engineers on their side. We help them go through to production where we work with our uh, manufacturing vendors to get uh, units produced, assembled, and then see them come to life. And there's, it's cool to see a photo of Elon standing beside it during one of the presentations. It's yeah. like, um, so that was that. Um, and then the, uh, and that still lives on. Um, that robot is still being used in all of their trials. We've, we've seen it um, and it's super awesome. Um, and then on the, the wearable device, that was uh, the first generation. It was a f funny, it was our first project with them. And um, we were working on it, working on it. And most projects we do were like, okay, this is like a two, three year effort. And it's going to be a lot of um, back and forth. And uh, they'd taken this uh, design to a certain level where we'd work through all the high level ME, like they were going to have some sort of, this is where we're going to have the battery. This is where we're going to have the part lines. This is how we're going to have the inductive charging go through. Um, and we're like, okay, we're on, we're like moving into, I don't know, phase two or phase three, but we, uh, we had these, uh, appearance models we did. And, and then next thing we know, um, it, it's shared with the world and they're, they're, <laughs> done. they're done. They're ready to go. <laughs> and, uh, so that was uh, 2019 when they first shared that uh, and it was super cool. It was great to see that. Since then, uh, they've been able to take the uh, next step of evolving the design. And now the entire unit is going to be in a little pill 
that is now flush with your skin. So the actual wearable is being parked until because they don't need to have it anymore. They right. Simple, I, from what I can remember, it's like a little hole that is drilled into your, your skull. Yeah. And then the puck sits flush. That's right. Right. That's okay. right. So uh, the decision makes sense. I think they've, they've got this hope that people don't have to have it be visible from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, and we haven't been involved in a lot of those technical conversations. So I don't know those trade-offs they made to like land on that solution. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm sure they're, they're very smart people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, I had mentioned to you, I've James and I worked on the control lab stuff, yeah. which is similar, you know, brain computer interface. And it's, I think the biggest takeaway that I got from that experience was like, you're working with insanely intelligent people and you kind of feel like silly sketching out this cool thing. It's like, Oh, it could look like this. And everyone's like, yeah, we're talking about like brain surgery over here, you know, like literal, you know, brain surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you felt that way or how you navigated that experience. I mean, you obviously have a bit of that engineering background. So I think that was definitely a big pro for you. Yeah. I think we just ran a tight program. So we would come in there, like we would be respectful of their time. I think what we did is we, we didn't do a lot of sketching together. It was mostly, this is just the practicality of the program. We would like we did a huge brain dump at the beginning where we like captured all the constraints. We went away, we came back and presented seven concepts, at least for the robot. Uh, they narrowed it down during a meeting to three, we refined three. And so it was very like tactical strike with them. And mm -hmm. then the execution was like a couple of key team members on their side that were deep in the weeds with us, helped execute on it. Um, and then I think, uh, for the wearable there, there were those moments. I remember those where it's like, um, okay, why are we talking about this? Like, and then you're, you kind of have to walk through your logic for why it's important. And then you align. Sometimes they're like, you understand that where they are as a business, it's not important for this constraint yeah. and this constraint. So it's a two way street. There were moments where I remember, um, developing out some cool, uh, magnetic, uh, alignment tool that, um, would allow the wearable to easily lock into the back of your, your ear without having to do any fidgeting. And mm -hmm. I, I remember that the president, trying it and I got a smile out of him. He didn't smile very much, okay. but he actually smiled for a moment. And oh, I was I like, that. Oh, something's right here. I did something right. And so very serious, very smart people, yeah. but you get a, I think there's some, there's a lot of value. I won't overvalue designers overvalue design all the time. We're the, right. we're the most important people in every project. Sure. Right. Okay. <laughs> but I think in that situation, I did see some value in design where it's like this guy, we, we are adding value to this project. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, I think a big part of that value too was your redesign of it, of the machine, making it white, making it smooth and round, gave it that more friendly feel, that more approachable feel that it desperately needed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it may seem small in comparison to brain surgery, but, it, you know, it is an important part of the process. It is what the entire world will interact with. It's the, the iPhone in your pocket and not the, you know, assemblage of batteries and components that people enjoy, you know? Um, uh, did you ever get to meet Elon? No, no, I didn't. Maybe, maybe uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, I think one of my designers was uh, working on site when, uh, when he came through one time yeah. and it was like, I think he mentioned, he's like, well, I think Elon came in today when I was in the, in the office and I was like, oh, that's crazy, but no, no interactions. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some other technologies and we can also get back into brain computer interfaces cause I know you've done more speculative work on that area. Um, but I also noticed that you've dabbled in the blockchain space. You've done some NFTs in the past. I was big into that. 
Um, I'm still passionate about the the technology behind it, um, but yeah, I'm curious where you think that's going to go. Um, obviously, now hype's died down, but you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think for me, that that per, that technology was nicely aligned with a, a particular project we were doing at the time that we didn't have a an outlet for. It was called Kintsuki Upgrades. It was basically. Um, uh, I'm always interested in like the studio. Uh, one of the things I care about is like, how do we create tools? This is a bit of a esoteric ramble for a second, but, um, if you can entertain me, I'm ready. Okay. For it. Yeah. This is what the podcast is for. <laughs> we're, uh, we're passionate about creating tools for a living and they can be, we call them technology now, but one day hopefully there'll be things like toothbrushes or combs or right. shoes, things that make your life better. At one point, those were technologies, right? Yeah, yeah. And every culture had them across the time, like across the world, across different um, countries. So there's this element of like, um, how do we encapsulate all of the cool things that have happened in the past and could happen in the future, innovations in, in kind of a, an artistic and creative endeavor. So we thought, why don't we take um, a series of... Uh, artifacts that have been scanned by world famous museums that are these kind of archaeological artifacts like vases i saw a lot of vases that's right yeah. and that we we grab them from different museums uh, and i think most museums now have digital artifacts that are free and accessible to anyone who wants to grab them and they might be hosted on sketchfab um some of them um but yeah uh, we took those we digitally shattered them and started rebuilding them with different new technologies and kind of tried to, and then Kintsuki is, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's a Japanese kind of mending process where you take gold leaf and apply it to the cracks of a broken vase to make it more valuable than it was before. So we use that as kind of a, a metaphor for how we were trying to reassemble these old artifacts from these other cultures, from other times and other places into new technologies and new, new kind of meanings and futures. Um, and uh and then we're like oh well this these would make for great nfts so let's try and see what that looks like and at the time it was um the the interesting thing with that project was and i think as industrial designers we're like the natural question is like we have this designs this design skill around making products in the physical world and if we were to make products for a purely digital world what would translate? What right. would, what skills would actually be useful? And so this was an opportunity for us to explore that and see like, okay, well, here are the uh, values we would be able to, or value we'd be able to bring to that world and things we would contribute to it. Yeah, it's almost like the thing you created was only able to be created because it was digital, right? It's like these yeah. artifacts that you took from a museum. You can't take the real ones. That's so right. So you took the digital ones, you smashed them you know, in 3D, you know, glued them back together with, you know, gold and, and then added some sort of, I, I there was a lot of kind of, I wouldn't, I want to say like, like cyberpunk element to sure. it. Where yeah. It was like a machine attached onto the vase that only exists in the future. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I think, uh, I'm, I'm into that world. So I think there's definitely something there. Um, we've, we've discussed a little bit about how I think blockchain technology is kind of the, the counter to AI where AI is going to create so many images and proliferate so many, you know, so much information that minting your work on the blockchain is almost a way to say, this is 
authentic human-made item, right? Um, as com- as compared with AI, obviously, you know, you could mint an AI image, but you get the point where it's like there's some give and take there, which I think is interesting. Um, I don't know if you really, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or like thoughts generally about that technology. But I think honestly, like we've as a studio, we've been trying to digest the impact of AI on our business um, to see whether it's why why this is happening. Like, what is the root cause of where we are right now? Like, I've had a friend mention that there is a like this potentially is all starting from a, a paper that was published by Google in 2017 called attention is all you need. And it's the source of like G, GPT is, um, the T is a transformer and that transformer applied to neural nets is like that transformer model is why we've had this rapid growth. Uh, so they've re- reworked neural nets to, to be more effective with this adjustment they've made. So the last five years have been, I think building on that and that's why where we are, we are today. Cause I, I always like, I'm like, why are we, why is this all of a sudden taking off? Like, what is the actual mm-hmm. science behind it? There must be something deeper. Right. So I think, I think I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm smart enough to know the actual like science behind it and the, the math behind it, but I'm curious about things like that. So I like, I've kind of pushed ourselves to be like, what's the cause. And then how is it going to impact our, our studio? Like what are the creative uh, opportunities we can be leveraging? The obvious stuff is like playing with mid journey, uh, playing with stable diffusion, but also just seeing like, what are the tools? I don't think we've gotten to a point. I've seen some designers actually build out their own, um, version or I forget what you call it. It's a, it's when you take a stable diffusion model and you start to train it on your own uh, visual data right. mm-hmm. and train it to be your, like develop your own style. Right. It's, it sounds great. Um, in terms of like. Uh, it sounds great, but the, there's a but coming. It sounds like. <laughs> it sounds great, but no, I just uh, I have no idea what that I uh, have no idea what that future looks like. So is it like enabling signature styles to proliferate? Is it killing um, my my point of view and what I'll be talking about at this talk is going to be that as humans we still understand uh, two things. I think um, in, intuition is our ability to to easily jump and make solutions um across different diverse slightly connected topics something that requires uh probably more data points for ai to be able to do um so our ability to to run with less data points and make those some those those connections is kind of unique to us and i think um also our our ability to um uh i think yeah i think I'd lost my train of thought. (laughs) I mean, I think you're right that there is this innate ability for designers to kind of intuit different connections between AI and whatever they're designing. And I think there's definitely opportunity there. I mean, I don't know if you've, you obviously, you said you play with mid journey and stuff. I I think something that I've seen recently is there's a lot of designers doing image to image where they'll upload a sketch and they'll get a rendered version of their sketch. Um, And I see that as being a, a, quite a big opportunity um and you know i we just had dan harden on the podcast and he was talking about how they're using ai to put their designs into context um which i think is great Mm -hmm. idea as well i mean i've been using you know photoshop has ai built in now so you can make a render of a you know i was i was working on some 
pet stuff recently and then just like adding in a cat or a dog into the to the sure. render yeah, yeah it looks amazing and it looks really real and it's like it just adds that extra little of little bit of context i do remember what i was going to say the second point what's that it's um as humans we understand uh, empathy we understand mm. people's needs we're des- at the end of the day we're designing things for other people to use and so people are complicated and i think there's probably a lot of work being done trying to parse user interviews user feedback with ai like using llms to take um like qualitative research that you would do with users and and make sense of it Mm. but i also feel like at the end of the day that process of interpreting it making sense of it is still like a human endeavor where we're trying to understand what it is that really resonates with people and especially if it's in a new the conversation is always like if you're pushing into something that doesn't exist already in the world and the whole, like if you ask people what they wanted, they'd say they wanted a faster horse. That, that paradigm is, is, is kind of the reason why people are probably going to be valuable as designers uh, still. Um, I don't know what that means in terms of the number of designers or whether their job's going to change, but that ability to kind of think about what doesn't exist yet. Right think outside the box it sounds so cliched i'm trying to figure out a way to like frame it in a way that is a little bit more quantified or, or like clear that doesn't seem like it's just hand waving again but <laughs> you know what i mean yeah i mean i feel i feel like uh you know that's still something that we have a leg up on ai is this ability to be to dream to to create things that don't exist yet i think ai is great at iterating on designs and you know adjusting designs or coming up with a a vast number of ideas based off the original you know core idea um but i i'm curious like maybe you know would that go away i mean if we think about creativity creativity is a lot of times just combining two seemingly unrelated things to create something new and you know that's not that difficult of a leap to to make an ai do in my head yeah um so I don't know. There's, a, there's that ongoing conversation that a lot of these technologists have around like um, AGI, like artificial general intelligence, like that ability to jump between contexts, like understanding context, jump between specific problems and connect them together. Um, and s- a lot of them are, I think the term itself is a fairly open-ended term. So it might be being used differently by individuals, but right there's some optimism from the technology community that they can get there. I'm curious. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I'm curious (laughs) about what that looks like. Are you scared of AI or AGI rather? Um, I think that's, that's when I'm kind of making these, these propositions that like as designers, we're, we're in a good place. It's on the assumption that AGI will not be that possible. Mm. So if it, if it does start to become an, that possible and these connections are being made at a level where it's intuiting between two different seemingly unrelated topics because it understands context that well then I'd, I'd, I'd probably say it's, it seems like in some ways it's starting to become at least from a practical standpoint uh, a little bit of a challenge for us to understand what's uh, what our leg up is yeah one thing that I've experienced using AI it feels like as AI gets better, it actually falls into this uh, maybe uncanny valley scenario where 
I almost sometimes want to use the bad AI. And when I'm thinking AI, I think about like image generation. When I'm generating images, sometimes the images are too good and they don't come up with creative ideas. They're like fully finished. And it's, it's the mistakes that I think can sometimes lead to those creative ideas. Yeah. So I don't know. There's also a whole other conversation around like, like bias is built into AI as well. I know every time I've searched for like Persian man in, uh, I think it was stable diffusion up like a straight up terrorist shows up oh, no. like beard yeah. and turban and everything. And I was like, yeah. Oh, how did that become the train data for like a Persian man? I didn't feel good about it. I was like, Oh, this sounds a little bit, that needs a bit of work. And I think, I think, I think there are some interesting publications about that. That's, it'll probably get solved. Um, but I do think it's good to be con- talking about that stuff and thinking about what, what can be done to make sure that this technology is better than the previous technology. Yeah, for sure. We're always trying to improve, right? Um, maybe switching gears a little bit. What do you, you, you've done a lot of UX work or you've done some UX work Yep. and it, I was reading, it looks like you worked at, I think it's called noon Yeah. as a lead UX designer. That's right. Um, there's not, <laughs> James and I sometimes joke, like there's this idea of industrial designers graduating and then going to work UX and then never coming back. It's this, this, this black hole that sucks them in. Well, I think likely because of the salary difference. Um, and so the question that I, this is actually coming from one of our listeners is, is ID undervalued compared to UX? Um, and if so, like, why is that? Uh, it, it seems like UX is a higher paying field. Um, so I'm just kind of curious your experience with that. Obviously going in and starting your own business is less of a comparison to, yeah. to that. But. I'll, uh, I don't know if this, these are like confrontational words, but I think that <laughs> like I was reading an article about, I think on Dezine about how like architectural schools are, it's fine that they're training them and then they're just deciding to go and become something else. And then they just, I was like, well, if you're going to, why are you just calling architecture school? Just don't <laughs> call it that anymore. Like, why are we pretending we're giving people training in a certain field that they're not going to practice in? Why don't you just call it something else or else you're making it confusing for them? Oh well, yeah. School's got to make a lot of money though. That's, that's so they're maybe there's something there. So if there's like a, there's obviously a, a greater need, we're seeing it in our lives, like minimalism where we need less stuff. Convergence happened 20 years ago where we had our calculator or our alarm clock all go into a phone like that, that's a reality. And then that means that we're going to have less stuff and we're going to have more digital products. There's more need from industry there. And so there's probably just, if you did the numbers on it, probably a order of magnitude increase in number of digital products being created. And I don't know what the physical products are doing, whether they're decreasing, but that's a reality. And so I think that the work out there is just, there's more demand. And so the, 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 the what they're getting paid. And they're also under the gun right now too. Like a lot of the AI tools that are coming out are squared dab and like digital products are beginning automated a lot easier probably than physical products will be. Yeah. Like all these mid journey renderings are great, but they're not going to solve for a product that doesn't exist already. And a lot of the product digital product design that we're seeing is like another version of a, an existing product that you can kind of, just, it's like Uber for blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's like, if you just tell the AI it's Uber for blah, blah, blah. It's probably going to, it's probably going to figure it out. So I think there's a little bit of empathy that we need for the UX world as well. They're, they're challenging. I think that's um, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that answers the question. I mean, I think it's interesting because it, it does seem like I I hadn't made that connection yet where AI is poised to, you know, approach UX first. Um, 
as compared to design. So it is kind of funny. It's like, you know, when I graduated in uh, 2015, so I was, I remember my last year of college, it was really popular, the idea that people could go into UX and there was some pressure to go into UX. There was people saying, oh, you should, you should take the UX class at, at SCAD. And, you know, I, I did take a UX class because um, there was, it was just like, that's where all the opportunity is. That's where you're going to make money. Um, and of course, you know, art school is really expensive. So I, I was like, I need to pay off my debt. Uh, so I was like, maybe I should try UX. I couldn't, I couldn't love it. I just couldn't get into it. That's fine. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I, that's why I'm kind of also like interested to hear that you also tried it, but also I think you're still kind of using it in your practice. Oh yeah. Now, so. No, no, no. We we're 50% UX, 50% yeah. ID, I think. So I, I started doing, I didn't, it was, I was interested in digital when, um, John Maida was still at the aesthetics and computation group at MIT. So that's how old I am. <laughs> so he was uh, an inspiration, I think, just watching how uh, code can be aesthetic. And then they developed, um, his students created processing. And for a while, like digital and digital was a, an, a world of like, what is it? How is this as a creative medium? And so as industrial designers, we're kind of close to it. And I was curious and I worked in like human computer interaction labs. I worked at MIT's Media Lab Europe for a, an internship. Um, and I was just interested in how this new technology, this digital technology would work. And people like Hiroshi Ishii that were doing tangible media were interesting for me because it was like, oh, okay, well, how is an, in, how is an object going to have a digital layer to it? Um, that all went away. We all got a phone and we realized it. <laughs> and then it became UX design. It became like a, a clearly defined field with a, a set of clearly defined protocols, which it was going to be eventually. Right. We all needed that. It was like, it was too, it was a good thing for the industry in a way. Um, but what that meant is everything became a lot more uh, clearly defined. And like, it was interesting. I think the Figma's conference this year in, in San Francisco, I think it, was, it had about 2000 people attending it. So it was g ginormous. So like, I think it's created this, its own world around it. And, uh, I think as a design agency, our approach to that work is that we understand how to do more unique UXs, uh, that's basically moving out of the pure screen world into the physical world. We've done a lot of things where we're 3d scanning, uh, things, objects, bodies. Um, we've also done the smart home space where we had to understand user experiences where you're traveling through a home, setting up different switches. Um, and also that engineering brain also comes to, to life when you're doing UX, right? You understand how the order of operations could either be a little bit better, a little bit less uh, friction mm -hmm. um, to get to a better result. I think also you've used your UX skills pretty well with just your, I guess, speculative projects on brain-computer interfaces. I saw that amazing video where you kind of walk through a day in the life of having a brain implant. And it's just a simple, you know, video where the guy's looking at his phone and you hear the overlay of his voice talking to the digital assistant, but it's all in, all in the mind. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of curious, maybe can you walk us through that project? Cause that's, I'm assuming that's maybe something you did after Neuralink or yeah, 100%. I think the, um, the conversations we had with Neuralink got us wondering like, what will these interactions actually feel like? Mm -hmm. Um, and the other very, big question is what are the ethics around them? Like what, what, what's appropriate, what's going to be best for users. And in a space where, um, like there's neuroscientists, there's, um, 
there's biologists, there's material scientists, there's, there's no like, there are actually neuroethicists, but you're not going to see them inside every company. And so uh, like a designer is kind of the, the, the human, the de facto human representative, like, okay, this is what people, this is what we should do. So people are being like Thought considered. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, um, again, you've got to understand how to have the most impact in those roles so that people listen to you. But, um, when we were doing that project, we were, uh, we did it after Neuralink and we were focusing on how to blow that up and understand what the, the implications are for people through the work. We always try to think about it through the lens of sketching. So we're sketching, but we're sketching a user experience. And how do you sketch a user experience for a thought based interface or like, and we're like, well, you know what the closest I've seen to that is like those, those, those movies where it's like, uh, like a teenager's thinking to himself in his yeah. head about what he's going to do or what he's going to say to like, um, I feel like the, the girl, um, the wonder years did that a lot. Um, and so it's like, uh, we just tried to try different ways of building those out. And we did that one kind of the three minute video. Then we did a series of shorter, um, like 20 second videos and started to just set up a, an easy backdrop, create an easy way to record videos, um, and execute on them so we can start being a little bit more iterative with it. Yeah. I mean, I think what was interesting to me about that video is you really showcased the experience really well. I mean, James and I did a little bit of this with Control Labs where we were telling the story of what it's like to live with a brain-computer interface. And the one scene I really like is the the guy goes, sits down at his computer and starts building this 3D model of a character. And he, and the, the overlay in the brain is like, he's like, all right, make the smile 20% more smiling and like add, add the hair that's three inches long. And it, you know, the computer's just doing all this. Um, which is which is kind of interesting to me because I'm curious how you see see that happening because in my head I don't necessarily feel like you would be talking to yourself saying all right extrude this ten centimeters I I almost feel like it would be you're thinking about the form and the form just happens that's how I that's how I envision it in my head but it's curious that you went the route of just dictating the form. Yeah. And maybe that's just the nature of trying to explain it in a very simple way, but uh, yeah, that, that's it, I, there's a lot of uh, back and forth we had on the, on that scene and that approach in general. And it was the trade-off is yes, you can either make it really easy for people to understand and catchy mm-hmm. and kind of like I think the there was a little bit of aspiration that was built into that of like how well this experience could work. Um, the, the, the flip side at that time in 2021, I think it's 2022 is when we did that video is um, the real uh, lever that uh, all of this technology has right now is your motor, cort- your motor cortex. So left, right, up, down, um, like the part of your brain that moves your arms is the part of the brain that's actually relatively easy for people to control with, with a neuroprosthesis. So <clears throat> if you're going to show something that's realistic, it would be more likely like grab that, pull it left, grab that, pull it up, grab mm-hmm. that, pull it down. So if we really wanted to lean into what we thought was a little bit more scientifically sound at that time, now with all of the, like, um, the opportunities with AI coming in, it's almost like that videos potentially becoming a little bit more realistic, mm-hmm. like because all the, the language models are starting to understand any, like they can, they can adapt so well to what your output is. Right. Um, there is this next, uh, wave of, uh, AI meets BC brain computer interface, which 
I don't know enough to know if it's going to fulfill that dream, but I do know that with what we're seeing happening right now in the world of AI, it's going to impact that the, the interaction space for brain computer interfaces and get hopefully closer to something that's easier for patients of BCI technology to really engage with easier. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've seen a few, you know, articles about AI being able to decode vision. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what I'm thinking when I think, when I think of a form, then it just exists on the computer. I mean, that'll be wild. Yeah. You know? But, um, they had something about uh, decoding bra- uh, dreams, I think. Dreams, but, yeah. yeah. So I feel like there's some there's some connection there for sure. Yeah. Um, another question we have here is, obviously, you have your own studio. Uh, how? Uh, tell me a bit, a bit about the studio. You have, how big are you guys? And also, I'm curious, uh, the name Card Seventy Nine. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so we're eight people. We're still relatively small. Uh, we're distributed. We got most of our team members in San Francisco, with team members in Korea, Canada, and the Philippines. Um, and the studio name comes from uh, my uh, where my family's uh, Iranian Persian, um, and uh, my grandfather. Uh, we have like my my. My grandmother on one side was a great palm reader. My grandfather on the other side, uh, he worked for like, an, he was an insurance guy. He sold insurance most of the time, but he was also the family like card reader. Okay. So he read- uh, Like tarot cards? Uh, Ganjifa or... cards. They're these special, okay. like there's a, they're round cards. They're fortune telling cards, but they're, they're a little bit different than tarot cards. Um, and they come in a deck of, the, at least the ones he had came in a deck of 78 cards. Oh, okay. So that's fortune telling cards. Fortune tellers tell the future. We kind of tell the future. We thought, why don't be the card that doesn't exist yet? Because we're going to create that. I so, like it. All right. Yeah. All right. Very yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, so the question from our audience is, what do you, what do you, what is the future of consulting like, especially when times are lean? Um, I think this kind of question is coming from the kind of the recent downturn in the economy, especially with a lot of tech companies cutting back. Um, so I'm kind of curious. If you have experienced anything in your consulting career where you're trying to pivot or, you know, focus on other things, um, or what do you do during that time to, to drum up more business or if you've been lucky enough to just been, been set, I don't know. I think it's probably two things for us. It's like, first of all, it's doubling down on your niche. So being really clear about what you do and, and continuing to, um, move away from being a generalist. So saying these are the things we want to focus on. This is what we want to be really good at. And, um, I think that's been our, our kind of main ethos. And then the second, I think, is just in terms of the way that we run the studio, um, being more collaborative and embedded uh, with our clients so they feel like we're part of their team. Um, so in terms of how we run programs, um, it's less of like the go away for two weeks, show a deck, go away again for two weeks, show another deck. Um, we're working together in Miro and Slack and Figma whatever on a daily basis showing like how the sausage is made basically. Um, and so it provides for a little bit more of like, it's, it's less showy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also a little bit more of a, uh, an ability for them to feel like they're part of the team. And then that way they kind of look to you more as an extension of their team. Mm. Um, not to say that they don't always hire their own internal designers, but, um, that is something we said too, is, is kind of the downturn, uh, internal teams shrink a little bit and maybe more outsourcing happens now as, it, as, it, as opposed to before when a lot of the tech companies had larger internal teams. That's so. interesting. So you're saying actually that it's helpful 
because now companies are saying we don't have an internal team. Let's bring on, you know, a, a small team that can that can integrate really well with us. Possibly. So I, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've I've heard the scenario, the whole scenario where you know some consultancies just lay out three products on the table. They're finished, ready to go. Pick one, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, well, is it Frog that was famous for doing that, or yeah. Um, uh, a few more questions, and then I think we'll wrap it up here. But um, do you have any favorite or inspiring designers, or maybe even you know entrepreneurs, or what, where do you find inspiration for for some of your work? That's a great question. Um, ooh. Put you in the hot spot. Here. You have, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Grow, growing up as a young designer, I was always inspired by people like Constant Kerchich or fashion designers like uh, Ray Kawakubo um, from Comme des Garcons, um, people who made ugly beautiful. Mm. So I think maybe that's coming from my background is like, outside of maybe the European or whatever the, the coming from a little bit of an outsider's perspective and seeing how, um, these people are able to kind of take interesting ideas and, and, um, and make them somehow palatable and, and appealing and complex ideas. Like if you look at Comme de Garçon's work or, um, or Constant Gertrude's furniture, it's definitely like intellectual mm -hmm. and it forces you to kind of dig into it. And I think, um, that same complexity and that ability to kind of dig deeper is something that I appreciate and hopefully, and they're, they're, they're also beautiful. Like, yeah, I, 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 uh, I always have this moment where I remember seeing him in one of her ex exhibitions in London at the, um, I forget what the, uh, the building was. What's the old, uh, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I've never been to London. So oh, anyways, it's a totally rabbit hole. Anyways. So I, yeah, those are two examples of people who I've always kind of held close to my heart as people who've, um, just done, done weird really well. Yeah. Um, and, um, not think, weird, not weird for weird sake. Like right. I think they both have a, a very strong intellectual, uh, approach and not to say I'm like a, a, a bookish designer like I like making things that are beautiful and practical but I just think we're moving into a space where we have to have that level of kind of bookish thinking. what does that mean <laughs> oh like maybe designing for more spending time on the idea behind the right. design okay. than the actual execution of the design you know when people are yeah, yeah. they talk about their design and then you look and you're like that's what you're talking about and <laughs> I think there's a disconnect I mean I think I think I agree with that I think there is a lot of value in building the the idea behind the design and then just executing on that idea and removing anything that doesn't belong in that idea. And at the end of the day, building creates ideas like built to think is not a, it's not a, it's a, it's a thing, right? You build, you think through the build, you mm -hmm. learn from it. So what you say should be a reflection of what you just did. Right. So if I don't, yeah, I always think that, and maybe that's my, my core belief that like your hand, Again, it's like, how are we different than AI? We have hands. <laughs> Not to say that these are magic hands, like they're just hands, but the way that we learn as humans, uh, this is one of our unique selling points. Our right. USPs are our hands, like, right. and how we evolve with those is a good thing. It's something we should, we should embrace. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're making the, the humanoid robots with hands soon, so they'll plug in AI. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same. They didn't evolve those hands. They don't have the same neurology as we have. Um. One last question. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Afshin. Mm -hmm. 
uh, what are you excited about for the future? Like, is there anything that stands out to you? It could be something small, it could be something big, it could be something about tech, it could be about design. Is there anything that you've I'm been kind always, of obsessed with? I'm always interested in like um, how, I think this, the thing that gets us up every day is just like creating things that will one day be like soap, like shoes, like. <laughs> like all the technologies like of the past. Yeah, like that's what gets me up every yeah. day is like, what can we do that's one day not going to be technology? And it, it, it's it's a high bar to set, but it's one that makes me super uh, enthusiastic. But we've been doing this for almost two decades now. So like it's, there's got to be something there, right? And that's that's my thing. It's yeah. the hope that we can contribute in a meaningful way that's going to blend in one day. Yeah. Do you have any other things you want to plug? I mean, you know, definitely check out... Uh, card 79 yeah check out card 79.com um you can see all of our work there you can see some articles uh if you have any projects that you don't see there you can always reach out to us we got um, a nice contact form on there um we've got an instagram account and linkedin account um card.79 for linkedin for instagram sorry and um i think those are some of the main ways to get in touch with us we're always happy to have conversations if everyone's in san francisco feel free to reach out any questions you can grab us on the contact forums and uh, we're always uh friendly people awesome yeah we'll, we'll put all those links in the description and everything so you guys can check it out awesome. um but ash Efshin, thank you again for coming on the pod it's been wonderful talking to you and uh we'll, uh, hope to see you around soon maybe i'll visit san francisco and and connect so. that'll be awesome thanks for having me eh? um and as always i'm nick and I'm Afshin. Peace out. Bye.